0: Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Victoria, The Review. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Here we are. The fifth
1: and final episode of uh, Queen Victoria, I uh, realised when I was listening back to the first one, that at the start we were talking about four episodes, mm. so it's mm. grown exponentially. Um, but this is the last re- um, episode of Queen Victoria, we are actually going to review her now, factor by factor. Yeah. If you want more detail on her life, or on her politicians, or MPs, the events of her reign, we've got four episodes in There's the back catalogue. there. So, Queen Victoria... She's born in 1819, a daughter of Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, and Princess Victoria of Saxe, Coburg, and Strathlon. And she becomes Queen in 1837 when she's uh, 18 years old. Mm. Youngest Young. person since Edward VI, son of Henry VIII. And she is the great great grandmother of Elizabeth no, the that II.
0: Is, that is properly, me- that, that's nearly memorable.
1: As we say, born in eighteen nineteen, uh, the Duke of Kent was the fourth son of George the Third. He died in eighteen twenty. So the family and the family was unpopular with the sort of current monarch, George the yes. Fourth. Um, so her mother became enthralled with the head of her household, John Conroy, and he was keeping her and trying to keep Victoria under thumb using what was called the Kensington system because she was brought up at Kensington. Uh, to try and keep Victoria away from court, away from everybody else, so that they could control her, so that when she became Queen, they'd be, in effect, controlling things. Yeah. And Victoria is strong enough to refuse Conroy's demands to make a promise to make him permanent secretary. She holds out Mm. and becomes Queen at 18 and is able to get rid of Conroy. However, although she gets on really well at the start, she's very naive because of this Kensington system, because she's been so isolated, falls under the spell of her first Prime Minister, Viscount Melbourne, and as such becomes a bit too headstrong, a bit too partisan. A bit too wiggy. A bit too wiggy, indeed. (laughs) She likes the weak party, so there's some early political crises. However, she settles down a bit when she falls in love with her husband. Well, before it becomes her husband. (laughs) (laughs) Prince Albert. She falls head over heels in love with him, gradually cedes more and more power to him. So he's, in effect, becoming a sort of a dual monarch Mm. with her. Yeah. Um, However, he's got a weak constitution, and in 1861 he dies. Retreats to Osborne House and Balmoral in in Scotland, shirks her public duties, doesn't want to open Parliament, staying away from the public view. As such, she starts to become a bit unpopular, republicanism even starts to take root um, all across the country. However, when her eldest son Bertie falls seriously with typhoid fever in 1871, exactly ten years after Albert died, his recovery sees the rejuvenation of the monarchy, people get behind them, they have that public Thanksgiving service where Mm -hmm. she goes through a carriage, raises his hand, everybody's right back behind her again.
0: Yeah, which was led by which Prime Minister?
1: It's Led by Gladstone.
0: Gladstone. And
1: it was Gladstone and Disraeli and their rivalry that helped bring Victoria back to the fore. Disraeli, because he flattered her, he had the imperialism which she liked, so she thought, yes, this is fun again, I like all this, this is good, I'm the Queen, yes, I can do anything. (laughs) And Gladstone, because she couldn't stand him, couldn't stand his reforms, couldn't stand his radical cabinets, couldn't stand the lectures that he gave her. So to oppose Gladstone and to support Israeli, she's right back in the thick of it again. Yay! Right back. Her later years, she's hugely popular. Her jubilees in 1889 and 1899 see a good million or so people out on the streets, absolutely adored by the public, and she finally dies in 1901, at the age of 81.
0: We're in the 20th century.
1: We are in the 20th century.
0: Yeah, great. Okay, <laughs> let's so do let's. this.
1: Battliness! well. It's been a very long while since we've been able to do this. And as such, actually, a lot of this stuff, the battliness stuff, despite there being four episodes, a lot of it I haven't really thrown in. There's so much history. There's so much history. Love it. And this is potentially where... Victoria, who might not have had such a good
0: rep rep from in the, the previous episodes, yeah.
1: this might be an area where she comes a bit more into it. You've
0: got to wing me round here because you know my feelings at the moment. There are about—it's
1: hard to sort of judge them exactly mm. as sort of conflicts and wars and rebellions, etc. Mm. I had to do a little spreadsheet just to work out. What to <laughs> Excellent. There were about thirty-five conflicts that Britain is involved in throughout Victoria's reign.
0: I mean, it is phenomenal, isn't it? It's an age of incredible empire adventures. I mean, obviously a horrible repression as well, but yeah. just if you uh, if you want to make find a, a period of history where there's stuff going on everywhere, mm. you can just pick your battlefield, it's this one.
1: Exactly. Britain is at war somewhere in the world for every year of Victoria's reign.
0: That's amazing. That's ridiculous. Actually, is, does that make her the most... Warlike monarch.
1: <laughs> She's the most battle-hard and yeah, bloodthirsty. That's bizarre. The thing is, there are lots of little conflicts, as we see, mm. so it's not full-scale wars like, you know, we don't have lots and lots of Trafalgar's every year, for example. Yeah,
0: no but, artillery facing each other. It's more mm. sort of conquest of native people, poor fellas.
1: Well, we'll see. Now, on first look, it might not seem actually all that impressive, a lot of these battles, Things like the first Anglo Afghan War, eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty two, there were eight thousand troops who are aiming to install a pro British ruler in Afghanistan, and as we now know, trying to dominate within Afghanistan yeah. is actually impossible. Elphinstone was the man in charge, it got so bad that he arranged an exodus, so safe passage for the British troops out of Afghanistan.
0: Why why? What?
1: Because it was just going they were just in trouble, they were surrounded, it was all going wrong, they thought so just let us go. <laughs> Wow! Um, but very lots of ambushes and uh, winter weather saw pretty much the entire army wiped out.
0: Oh, good lord! Oh, this is Khyber Pass, isn't it? This is where we're going between India to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's only that's that's the reason, obviously, for that. that's why yeah. Britain wants to get involved in Afghanistan. But there's only one officer that gets out wow. in the initial thing. There are some more who are captured, who are then later released. But in terms of the actual retreat, yeah, only one officer successfully gets back without being captured or killed.
0: And by back, we mean to India, or the, the yes. sort of base over yeah. there, right? That's phenomenal. Out of 8,000 men, but so then presumably a third of officers? I don't know, but Mm. a lot.
1: A lot. The Maoris in New Zealand, Mm. um, lots of indecisive conflicts, some of which you could argue that the Maori got the better of Britain, sort of flagstaff in the first Taranaki War. Crimea, 1853-56, to which is where you did have the big powers Mm. against each other, so Britain and France against Russia, um, highlighted the logistical immaturity of the British Army. There was a scandal at the poor treatment for the wounded soldiers. And, of course, you had things like the charge of the Light Brigade when you have this sort of suicidal cavalry charge in the face of guns and artillery, which is just because of these incompetent leadership based on people buying their commissions.
0: Yeah, and that was... um I read about this being the case in the Navy as well, because there hadn't really been a a pitched naval battle since Trafalgar. They ended Mm. up not being a meritocracy and just buying their position. So, Mm. Charge the Brigade, when you suddenly start having um, abject failure portrayed as some heroic victory. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there's always lions led by donkeys, but Mm. this is the... Yeah.
1: mm. Um, Boer Wars the first one uh, the tra- this is in South Africa mm. the Transvaal declared uh, its independence and despite only having a militia army where mm. they had to provide their own weapons huh. was a disaster for Britain at uh, Manjuba Hill and then the second war early defeat guerrilla warfare didn't go hugely well and the Zulus also uh, the 35,000 of the Zulus but armed with spears and shields mm. but their leader Ketchwayo, outwitted Lord Chelmsford
0: Um oh
1: drew out his main army and then destroyed the camp at uh, Izandlwana. Isand, and then the entire army was forced to withdraw before coming back with lots more troops before they could actually finish them off.
0: So that, that was a, a battle defeat, but they won the, they won the Zulu Wars. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, the Ashanti Wars, the 1860s to 1900. Again, successive attempts to bring what is modern-day Ghana full into the empire. But again, some defeats, heavy casualties, the wonderfully named uh, 1900 War of the Golden Stool,
0: And Stool, in this instance, means... Uh, Throne. Oh, okay, right.
1: Um, It was actually a queen mother that led the army.
0: Really? uh,
1: For the Ashanti, the Yah Asantiwa. And uh, though they even lost the war, they still ended up governing themselves. Mm. Um, The Mardi Wars, uh, and that was where we had Gordon murdered in Khartoum. Long time before Kitchener was actually able to get victory and revenge Mm. back. Um, So... In many ways, a lot of this isn't that impressive. There's no Trafalgar, there's no Waterloo, just lots of small conflicts against poorly armed opposition, which all seem to be a bit harder than they really should be. Yeah. So you win, but purely through the virtue of more men, well, more technology and more weapons.
0: Yeah, that's not quite so hot, is it?
1: However, if we look at the actual war record, it's pretty impressive. Four defeats, one draw, 30 victories. That's eighty six percent of victories
0: that's a, that's a and good even record.
1: the defeats yeah. are like little defeats, so some of those will be like a little defeat to the Maori, a little defeat to the Mahdi, but ultimately even the defeats in the grander conflicts Britain always won
0: why weren't we there the other great powers getting involved over here
1: uh, well, they're all sort of trying to maintain a balance of power. Hmm. So that none of them will actually go to war. Because as you see in Crimea, it's actually quite hard when they all come up against each other. Mm. So it's best avoided. Right. As we will see in 1914. So actually, statistically, it's pretty impressive. And we've got to ignore to a certain extent the memory of Waterloo and Wellington. Because actually this is a different period and this is a different kind of war. Britain's got an empire at this point. The main powers don't want to fight each other. So Britain's focus is on maintaining its colonies like Canada, New Zealand... Um, Africa, it's trying to dominate with the scramble for Africa where all the main powers are yeah. starting to get in so they want to be able to link
0: mm. their
1: bits of empire together and their main thing, of course, is protecting the jewel and the crown, India
0: Yes, and then by um, by consequence, the Suez Canal
1: And the Suez Canal, of course, yes So, for the colonies, they put down rebellions in Canada in 1837 and the Red Rebellion in 1870 created a Canadian confederacy in 1867 which is sort of the start of... Canada, mm. as a whole-scale province rather than lots of little ones. Uh, series of wars against the Maori, very hard fought, but ultimately um, Britain or New Zealand government were yeah. victorious. In Africa, they defeat the Ashanti Empire. They do avenge Gordon in the end and defeat the Mardi, so they restore, uh, restore Egyptian rule in the Sudan. Defeat the Zosa in various wars. and 1902, just after Victoria dies, they finally defeat the Boers as well. Hey. So, in Africa, you know, they're, actually, yeah. they're winning all these wars. They're not all easy, but they win them. And one of my favourite ones to have it is Zanzibar, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which is the shortest recorded war in history. Go on. Started at two minutes past nine in the morning. Yeah. And finished at uh, 20 to 10 in the morning.
0: What did they get done 38 in 38
1: minutes. Well, basically what happened was that the guy shut himself in his palace, hoping that they'd go away, bombarded by the navy... Troops charged the palace, and then they waved the white flag and gave up.
0: Wow! Yeah. Okay. Fair enough.
1: Um, main of thing, of course, is India. Hmm. The big concern is Russian intervention in the territories around India. So Afghanistan, for example, Britain resists it. First war didn't go so well, but then the second war, Britain do win an outright victory at Kandahar. Decide not to try to occupy Afghanistan. Wise. anymore. but they control its foreign policy and they keep Russia out. Hmm. Uh, they win territories from Bhutan, annex Burma, Persia, which no longer exists now, of course. And um, sought to take Herat from Afghanistan with Russian help. But Again, Britain got in there, didn't go into Afghanistan, but went directly mm. to them, forced them out, got a treaty. The Anglo-Sikh Wars again, very formidable, formidable opposition here. Big, probably the only one where we actually have big pitched battles between two large, fairly evenly matched armies. If anything, actually, the Sikhs are. Bit stronger, but Sir Hugoff leads uh, various victories. Prevent Tibet from encroaching on Sikkim. So they've protected India for all of this.
0: Yeah, and that's the the major foreign policy driver, isn't it? That's where all it? the Both money,
1: so much wealth that comes out of India. Right. So if India went, the whole thing would just tumble.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Like a
1: stack of cards. Because they wouldn't would, have the
0: money then to keep the others up.
1: Britain would no longer be a world power. Also, there are three successful wars against China. Oh
0: yeah, the open wars,
1: two open wars, and also putting down the Boxer Rebellion, which was a sort of alliance with all the Western nations that mm. just ganged up on China to keep them keep them down.
0: It's so immoral; those wars, they're terrible. Yeah.
1: The Crimean War actually achieved Britain's main aims, which was neutralising the Black Sea and limiting Russia's influence in the mm. region. So, yeah. even though there was no great big vit- British victory, yeah, the job was done. So, in all of these, we actually see Britain has picked its battles and it knows what it needs to do to maintain the empire and to restrict the power of the others. So it just succeeds. Sort
0: of, yeah, like like pressure point battles. They don't yeah. need to go out... They don't go whole scale against one big enemy. They just pick the very small ones. And nearly lose, but do win. Yeah. So, you know, jolly good.
1: And even if they lose the battle, they always win the war. Mm. And, of course, we have the British Empire. Yep. Now, this has been building, of course, for various reigns, but this is the point at which it really builds... Hugely, and it really becomes a much better conceived entity that they're working to yeah. preserve. Greater in size than any previous reign at this point, so Victoria's yeah. got a bigger empire than anybody else. Largest geographical spread of an empire in history.
0: Geographical spread, but um, geographical land area as well, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, oh, sorry, I thought you just meant it was stretched the farthest two oh, points. I know. I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> it?
1: That's the growth lies. <laughs> yeah. um, it actually reached its maximum point in 1922. Which yeah. is after sort of all the treaties after the First World War. But this is when, it, at this point, there's that's never been powerful. a bigger empire in history yeah. than at this point.
0: It's cool. That's cool. That's pretty Well, pretty. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah.
1: From a battling yeah. empire perspective, that's pretty impressive. So it covers about a quarter of the world's population.
0: That's phenomenal. I always forget that statistic. About 10 million
1: mind. square miles and 400 million people. And, of course, it's famously said that the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah. Although, as an American quipped, um, that was because God didn't trust Britain in the dark.
0: (laughs) Oh, I gotta...
1: (laughs) And as well as this, what we sort of call formal empire, i.e. where we're there and we're in control, there's Mm. also countries which are kind of in an informal empire, which is like economic control. So we're not actually... physically there but we control the trade control the economy so the like the opium wars in China mm. Argentina as well There are countries where we're not there but we're dominating mm. and it's working to Britain's imperial advantage
0: yeah and countries where we just have a puppet ruler mm. and so we have complete say over their foreign policy yeah it's, yeah it's pretty nasty stuff but and
1: uh, the legacy just purely by name um, Victoria's got more places named after than any monarch in history now Victoria obviously doesn't go to war herself. What? She's a woman. She's Blowed the queen. My mind here. Doesn't happen in war. But she does get interested in war. Mm. And she is a war leader of sorts. What? 1855, uh, during the Crimean War, Lord Panmure said, You never saw anyone so entirely taken up with military affairs as she is.
0: Was, this, was Albert dead by then? No. So she just did the... He did all the admin that she comes with and she like she the, goes, wah,
1: wah, wah, yeah waving a sword.
0: She's got a sword aloft here.
1: Her attitude is: she thinks war is terrible, but you couldn't allow Europe to think that Britain's not able to fight a war. And also, imperialism is necessary because, as she says, the native sovereigns cannot maintain their authority. It is not for aggrandizement but to prevent war and bloodshed that we must do this. That is, take possession.
0: Right, yeah, they've got fl- a very, flimsy. very
1: justifiable reason. Mm. As she says to Israeli, she recognises the threat there is on the empire and what needs to be done. Again, what we're saying about the tactics mm. and how to maintain it. If we are to maintain our posi- uh, position as a first-rate power, we must, with our Indian empire and large colonies, be prepared for attacks and wars somewhere or other continually. And she gives unflinching support to Disraeli and his uh, imperialism, urges uh, a hard line uh, when tensions arose with Russia in the 1870s. When wars do break out, she thought it was folly to try and make premature peace after early setbacks, so she's always trying to
0: keep going, yeah. keep
1: the confidence going. And a Crimean war is one which it's is one of the biggies. Mm. I'm so bewildered and excited, and my mind's so entirely taken up by the news from the Crimea. And of course, her father was in the army, so she sees herself very much as a soldier's daughter.
0: And her uncle, who was William IV, fourth. Fourth, was the Navy.
1: Yeah. So right. she sees herself as a soldier's daughter. Yeah. So, and she regrets not being able to get out there herself. She said, you will understand it when I assure you that I regret exceedingly not to be a man and to be able to fight in the war.
0: Really? So she's very wow. excited
1: by all of this. She comes home immediately from Scotland when Turkey declares war on Russia.
0: Oh, you can imagine going, ooh, exciting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, signs the commission of every officer while the war lasts so that she could preserve this connection. What commission? Uh, commission of Officers. Right. I just then becoming an officer. Yeah. In that yeah. thing. So she wants to have that connection with her troops. Regularly reviews the troops, made a point of uh, waving them off when they're going off on the ships.
0: Oh, well, that's good. Under the
1: ports. There was one time where she was reviewing um, a squadron of uh, very sweaty troops on a hot day. Mm. Of course, the day before, anti-perspirant and yeah. whatnot. So um, she then said, there seems to be rather... A... To which Palmerston then broke in. And said, oh, uh, that's what we call esprit de cause, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I like Palmerston. No, I don't like Palmerston, do I? He's uh, a he did in the- I Yeah, did but you like loved him me. in the yeah, end. Yeah. He
1: challenged you. Yeah. And again, this unflinching support. As she said, no consideration on Earth ought to stand in the way of our sending what ships we can lay hold of to transport French reinforcements to the Crimea. As the safety of our army and the honour of the country are at stake, the Queen is ready to give her own yacht for a transport which could carry
0: 1,000 men. So she's just, she is really, really bloodthirsty. She loves a bit of war.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if all of this is bloodthirsty. So, um, you know, as she said, uh, I feel a pride to have such troops, which is only equal by my grief for their sufferings. So she says, you know, she feels really for the families waiting for the news of their loved ones. But it's an important thing war for the state and for an empire mm. so she's right behind our troops mm. egging it on she's loving it um she knit socks mittens and scarves soldiers and for the wounded soldiers wrote letters of condolence to the bereaved inspected hospitals spoke to the soldiers there gave money for artificial limbs and pensions urged the government to provide better hospital facilities and of course we have Florence Nightingale. Um, in this period, doing lots of work yeah. on the front. Uh, Victoria envied her front-line front line role, sent warm thanks to her with a jewelled brooch, oh. and then invited her to Balmoral Mar- 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 after the war.
0: These socks she was knitting, Yes. <laughs> how did she distribute them, and how did they know that it weren't the officers just weren't taking them? Um, did I, she give them a nap when she was visiting? I, su- I
1: suspect that she probably gave them to somebody else who then put them in her little collection and sent them off.
0: With the label saying these ones are from the Queen.
1: I yeah, no, I don't know. If Sarah, you,
0: oh, I want to know what happened there. It's <laughs> really annoying me. <laughs> if you know, let yeah. us know.
1: And also, medals was something Victoria was um, very interested Oh,
0: VC, yes, brilliant.
1: Yeah, so she's very heavily involved in establishing the Victoria Cross as mm. a new medal, and it's Victoria that suggests the motto for valour.
0: Yeah, oh, right, totally good. And there's
1: also a Crimean War campaign medal, which she says that they should have, and mm. then they do, and then she gives it out to the soldiers. Later on, mm. of course, we have the Boer War. Yeah. She's right at the end of her reign when she's, you know, sort of getting on to 80 years old at this point. She's still up for it? Well, she is. She's an old woman but supports it very enthusiastically, gives her a new lease of life. <laughs> she um, always used to go to Osborne for Christmas mm. after the anniversary of Albert's death early in the month. But because of the Boer War, she stays in Windsor the whole time. Oh, right. And she says, after the Prince Consort's death, I wish to die. But now I wish to
0: live and do what I can for my country and those I love. And so what exactly was she doing?
1: Well, um, she was sending them some more knitted garments. Right,
0: no, how?
1: <laughs> 100,000 tins of chocolate. I think she paid for that she, rather than yeah, actually she's, making that. She's
0: got a post office.
1: New Year's Day, 1900, she sent her specially moulded chocolate bar to the troops.
0: Her specially moulded chocolate bar? A specially oh, moulded right.
1: chocolate bar. Yeah. Um, made visits uh, to the wounded. At this point, she's largely going around in a wheelchair, so she in her wheelchair was going around and visiting, <laughs> visiting the wounded. Mm. Uh, the general, she sent supportive correspondence to them, so no criticism after defeat. She tried to keep their morale mm. up. But when the ministers got down, she wasn't having any of it. So after what was called the Black Week um, in December 1899, were a series of defeats, and Balfour was looking a bit downhearted. Victoria reprimanded him and said, please understand that there is no one depressed in this house. We are not interested in the possibilities of defeat.
0: They do not exist. To an extent, though, you can see why she's saying this, because she's only had four defeats and then well, yeah, exactly. overall there's only been victories. Look at the, the stats, Mr Balfour. <laughs> look at this spreadsheet I've made. Florence Nightingales,
1: meet me a pie chart. <laughs> and she's got great diplomatic clout as well. Um, she, When she visits Louis-Philippe of France in 1843, it's the first time since Henry VIII, the British and oh, French monarchs, yes, met. She later meets with uh, Emperor Napoleon III and reflected how the granddaughter of George III should dance with the Emperor Napoleon, nephew of our great enemy, now my nearest and most intimate ally.
0: That's a good point.
1: Albert yes. joked that he would take every precaution that the uh, with the chapel. Um, at Windsor, in case George III should turn in his
0: grave. <laughs> oh, he's a card. <laughs> that, is, that is phenomenal, though, yeah. that two generations later, yeah. they're close allies and, they're, and related. And dancing. And Well, yeah, and dancing. I can't imagine Victoria dancing.
1: Um, in 1888, the Iron Chancellor of Germany, Bismarck, had an audience with her, and he came out and said, that was a woman. One could do business with her.
0: Is that where Margaret Thatcher got it from? She said that that's by the word, Korbachev.
1: man with whom we could do business. Yeah. I'm not sure if Bismarck was because the first Because he's the Iron Johnson, she yeah. was the
0: Iron Lady. Maybe. Oh, I see yeah. the Rex Factor connecting your history yeah. dots.
1: Potentially. <laughs> but anyway, so that's, you know, thumbs up from Bismarck.
0: Yeah. Jolly good.
1: Kaiser Wilhelm II was oh. her, um, her oldest grandson. Yeah. Of course. Um, she took great interest in him and he idolises her. So he's got a very tricky relationship with Britain, but he's still in thrall with her. So after there was a thing called the Kruger Telegram, when he basically praised um, the Boers resisting the Jameson raid, Um, Victoria wrote a very stern letter to him, from which, of course, he gets a very conciliatory response back. Sorry, Granny.
0: Really? Mm. (laughs) That's amazing. So
1: she can still sort of... Because this was the...
0: There was so much um, aggression going on there with... um, With that telegram, Mm. and then the sort of gunboat diplomacy up in Morocco Mm. with with Germany, and he's meanwhile behind the scenes getting told off by his grandmother.
1: Still getting told off by grandma. So she is the she's the grandmother of Europe in those later days. So she's really got clout.
0: That really that really sort of seems to work with Britain's position as this this all powerful. All-powerful nation and with a matriarch on the throne who can tell all of the other nations off Hmm. because she's related. Well,
1: as he says in 1914, the Kaiser, when his cousins, the Tsar of Russia and and King of Britain, declare war on him, he said, if my grandmother had been alive, she would never have allowed it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's perfect.
1: But it's true, you couldn't conceive of Britain going to war with Germany or with France or with Russia at this point when they're her grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. When she dies, as we saw before, worldwide displays of mourning really indicate the huge status that Victoria's got on Mm. the world stage.
0: Yeah, true. So... I mean, that's pretty... That's, to me, more a sign of a Rex Factor person than a... a battling battling person.
1: But before that, we had all the stuff in the Boer War, the Crimea War, her resoluteness, and, besides all of that, the stuff that's been done in her name, all these wars that even if they're not always hugely impressive on a small individual scale, the broad front, biggest empire the world's ever seen, I mean, covers not. a quarter of the globe, all the conflicts ultimately are tactical, chosen well, and they work.
0: Mm. Mm. I mean, it's good, isn't it? Is and of course
1: the Navy is still completely dominant. We didn't even mention of, the Navy. Yeah, yeah this, there, there are no naval conflicts because Britain's Navy is so much larger than everybody else's. Which, which
0: is a, doesn't do it any favours, but we'll mm. come to that in the future. Yeah. Um, it's good. It is good, but there isn't a Waterloo. There isn't. But that's because there has been a Waterloo, and it's yeah. given us the basis to then do, do all this stuff. So should those points have gone to Waterloo, which they did which I can't award them again.
1: No, but, I mean, they've done all of this afterwards, and this 36 conflicts.
0: It's been so long, and what do we even mark this out of? Um, we each mark out of ten okay, right, okay. <laughs> um, well it, it's more than I think it would be laughable to award what then becomes the world's biggest empire mm. less than five yeah um, but it, to get up into the really high scores you need a big pitch battle some legend that comes out of it I think you're going to go higher than me and <laughs> I want to bring it down a wee bit so I'm going seven uh, I'm going to go there is
1: the only thing where you think that if Britain went to war with one of the main powers they'd say, yeah, then, be stuffed but it's not I mean the thing with the Crimea is that actually it's not that Britain gets stuffed by Russia it's that all of the major powers actually aren't really equipped to fight each other because mm. they're all too big and they're all too ill-advanced tactically to unless get unless they
0: took the British on at the oh, let's see and then well, there'd <laughs> be trouble then there'd be trouble in <laughs> fact Britain
1: did have very decisive naval victories in the Crimea Mm. But there were no big battles. Britain just yeah. took the Russian fleet out and took control of the ports. So
0: I'm sticking with 7
1: sticking seven. i I'm, I'm talking between eight and eight and a half. Um, I, I think I'm going to go eight and a half just because it's the big, biggest empire in history. And the fact that she doesn't sit there completely not knowing what's going on, she's actually very engaged with all of the military affairs.
0: Yeah, you can give her a lot more credit than you, that, than perhaps for subjectivity, mm. especially for the Irish.
1: So she is actually engaged in all of this. She is actually yeah. being a war leader. and you think if that's what the Queen is meant to do, you yeah, she is doing it.
0: Yeah, and if you impress Bismarck, mm. that's per say something.
1: So that's 15 and a half for battliness.
0: Scandal! So... <laughs> What have you possibly got on Victoria?
1: Scandal is maybe not going to be Victoria's best Mm -mm. area, and she'd probably be pretty mortified if I said anything at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, even the word Victorian values (laughs) means the opposite of what we want to hear. It's the
1: antithesis of scandal. Mm. Initially, it's mainly political scandal. Yeah. So we'll go to our first Prime Minister again, Viscount Melbourne.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Now there were little bits of rumors, tittle-tattle. They spent a huge amount of time together. She hung on his every word. As mm. we remember people saying that her eyes used to follow him when he went out of the room. She was jealous when he was speaking too long to some of the other ladies. Yeah. She used to complain that portraits people didn't make him didn't get him handsome enough. Yeah. So, you know, some people suggested that maybe she was planning to marry him. She got nicknamed Mrs. Melbourne a little bit in times of unpopularity. Oh, really? In reality, of course, there's a huge...
0: There's an age gap. There's a pretty big
1: age gap and, you know, it's never going to happen. It's a father-daughter relationship, really. She'd lost her father, he'd lost his daughter...
0: I didn't realise he'd lost his daughter. to
1: we cover that? No, he might not have done. So it's that, it's a nice fix, yeah, really. Yeah, that is nice. However, there are political scandals. Lady Flora Hastings, mm. one of her ladies who she associated with Conroy, she fell ill with stomach complaints. So Victoria, encouraged by Melbourne, thought that ah, oh, she must be yeah, concealing a pregnancy. Turned out to be a fatal tumour. Mm. Victoria, very unpopular. It was complicated, of course, by the fact that her family, the Hastings family, were Conservatives. Mm. So it seemed like it was partisan she got stones thrown at her carriage that mm. was when she started to be called mrs melbourne mm. part of that we then had the bedchamber crisis when melbourne was first uh, had to resign victoria was in a peak of stubbornness and grief refused to change ladies of her bedchamber which meant that robert peel and conservatives felt that they couldn't form a government so as people were saying the caprice of a girl of 19 has blocked the formation of a great ministry
0: yeah, that was just nonsense, the whole thing. Mm. Amazing.
1: But, so we have a, you know some political scandal at the start of the run. Yeah, row. yeah. Now, the the main thing we've really got for scandal is John Brown.
0: Yeah, Billy. Um,
1: 1849, he was promoted to uh, the position of Gilly, when yep. I'm in Scotland, and then in 1858, Victoria's particular Gilly. It's by Albert. Albert um, rated him. He accompanied the family of trips around the Highlands. After Albert dies and Victoria is this weeping widow, all alone she won't go out, they bring John Brown down from uh, Balmoral to spend time with Victoria trying to help her get out to ride a bit more, get her outside. Mm. And they develop a very close relationship. Victoria likes his blunt but kindly manner. He acts as her groom, her footman, her page bodyguard, his main concern, you know, to keep her safe. greatly improves Victoria's mood, helps her back on her feet. She's got a man to lean on, which she always likes. Uh, but he's not popular with many people. He thought very highly of himself and his position, so he's quite aloof with the rest of the household staff, who didn't like the fact that this, you know, uh, interloper from Scotland suddenly come down is ordering everyone around. Her children, in particular, shocked at his familiar attitude to Victoria, calling her woman, yeah, and things like this, and his rudeness to them. Like if they came to see her, and he'd say, "No, she's not seeing you. Come back later."
0: That's pretty harsh to take. I can understand.
1: And there were rumours in the press that they were lovers. Even rumours that they had been secretly married and, she might, and she'd had her child by him.
0: I mean, the press just l- latch on every man she's with so far. They really
1: do. She's referred to as Mrs. Brown, which of course we yeah. famously get the film from. Unfair, really. When we compare this to the previous male monarchs and all that they get up mm. to, particularly if you think George Fourth.
0: Oh, it's incredibly unfair.
1: Um, But because she's a woman, any association for an unmarried woman with a man. Yeah. Scandalous. There's a tiny bit in there just, however,
0: to make you think, oh,
1: I wonder.
0: Really? This wasn't all just drummed up by the press to tell people?
1: After he died, Victoria wanted to write a biography of him and publish it. But had to be persuaded not to by her advisors, because they thought that this won't do any help in convincing the press that there was nothing going on there.
0: Didn't she write other books?
1: She did write other books. She wrote uh, Highland Journals. First one dedicated to Albert, but a second volume of it, just after he died, was dedicated to her loyal Highlanders and my devoted personal attendant and faithful friend, John Brown.
0: That sounds fine.
1: Well, but he's, he's dedicated to a servant by name. Mm. And you think the first one was dedicated to Albert, and this one isn't. It's mm. not mentioned this time.
0: And she would dedicated everything else to him. Mm. Halls.
1: Exactly. In her will, she mentioned all of the loved ones that she's looking forward to seeing again, names John Brown among them. Right. So, you know, she's got Albert, her parents, her children. Yeah. John Brown. And then secretly, she gave instructions to one of her trusted uh, physicians, Reed, I think, that... Among other items and mementos that she wanted to have in her coffin, so, you know, like the hand of Albert, the, the plaster the, hand, the plaster oh, hand, hand of right. Albert. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Painting of a portrait of Albert, all this sort of thing. She also wanted a lock of Brown's hair. Right. She kept And two wedding rings, one wedding ring from Albert and the other from John Brown, which um, had been John Brown's mother and then Victoria had worn it constantly after his death
0: it's yeah they, that is pretty that it's pretty odd but she had she was prone to strange behavior Victoria. she
1: was she was prone to get attached yeah to the strong man in her life
0: but this is the only instance where we've seen that kind of rumor yeah um well apart from the nonsense with melbourne but yeah you know, yeah actual i don't believe it
1: i don't believe it either but I suppose you do have to say that at the time it was there was yeah. scandalous gossip going on at the time. Yeah. And there's just that little bit there to make you think twice about it, even if you think twice and say no.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. We've we've paused for a moment yeah. on this, which is for for Victorian values <laughs> yes. something indeed. But when reflecting on it, even if it was scandalous, it's it's just that she fell in love with someone else after her husband died mm-hmm. who was nice to her. <laughs>
1: And probably she didn't.
0: And probably she didn't, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. She also
1: caused a little bit of controversy when, um, again with servants, um, she appointed two Indian servants in 1887, one of whom, Abdul Karim came to be known uh, as the Munshi um, yeah. teacher. Um, he was clever, ambitious young uh, Muslim, became a principal servant, uh, gave her lessons in um, Hindi, Hindustani, angered the household, kind of similar to John Brown, mm. because suddenly this rather arrogant person is just, Jumped straight to the top Hindus uh, resented the thought of a Muslim Seeing confidential papers So Salisbury had to actually step in And convince her to slightly change his role So that he didn't have right. access to all this sort of thing And again there's this slight thing cause of Sort of racial attitudes That people think of the Queen Cavorting with an Indian servant mm.
0: Mm. Yeah Yeah I mean it's it's these strange values That are mm. making this scandalous kind of but... Also she took drugs That's more like it Okay, well, tell me more. (laughs)
1: 1853, she accepted chloroform to ease the pain of her fifth labour. Just knocked her out. That blessed chloroform, the effect was soothing, quieting and delightful beyond measure. (laughs) Up to this point previously, men well, physicians, but men, yeah. have thought that um, labour had to involve the suffering of women or else it wouldn't be done
0: properly. Will work.
1: <laughs> but once Victoria said, no, give me the drugs, chloroform then becomes a standard. So oh, that's, that's one for subjectivity. Yeah, so that's the point at which
0: that's that becomes
1: a thing because Victoria does
0: yeah. it. Wow, can I imagine childbirth mm. without poor blokes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they get an earful, <laughs> it. And it's also rumoured that possibly she might have taken cannabis for menstrual
0: pain. This is fantastic. <laughs> for, what On what ground? I mean, it must it would work, I assume, but hmm. what, what was the attitude towards it at the time? Well, yeah, it wouldn't have been thought of as a thing like that,
1: just thought, oh, this might help take the pain away.
0: Wow. So it wasn't... It, kind of like listen, opium.
1: There was, it was only in this period that it starts to become...
0: An issue. The yeah. drugs
1: become an issue, so initially they're just thinking, oh, this is an interesting leisure item.
0: Yeah. And it works. Crikey Moses. yeah. <laughs> um, so, at the time, that wouldn't have seen, been seen as scandalous. But no. right now, <laughs> Queen Victoria took cannabis. That's yes, so if fantastic. we put that on the
1: front of the Daily Mail, you can make a scandal out of it.
0: Yes. When, whereas the other stuff that isn't scandalous to us now was the front page. So it's actually quite good if you just put a different We can
1: make page. headlines out of this. Yeah. There's enough to make a headline, even if there isn't really the substance behind it.
0: Like most scandalous. <laughs> people, <laughs>
1: yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. Good. Well, this is
1: looking up. So I don't think this I mean that's it. Mm, um, I don't think this can really challenge, you know, George the Fourth or Charles the Second or you know Henry the Eighth and Henry Second, obviously. No. But it's better than zero, which is what you might have expected. I
0: was yeah, definitely. Mm. Um Drugs <laughs> is brand new. I mean that's gotta be the new sex with nuns. Fantastic. Three points right there. Um Ah, uh, the now the other, no, the other two we can't do. John Brown she? political scandal. Which I mean, I'm, I've got to
1: give that bad point. subjectivity more than scandal. Yeah, you
0: know. four. Mm. No, well, that seems quite high. Actually, I suddenly realise <laughs> I'm talking about Victoria. <laughs> yeah. Oh, turning in her grave. <laughs> yeah, she really would. Um, I'm going to. I mean, this is what it's about. It's revealed a lot. It's four. Woof.
1: that's big. naughty, Victoria. <laughs> Not to mention how much she enjoyed her time in the bedroom with Albert. Well, quite, yeah.
0: She populated the rest of the European aristocracy.
1: Just like Charles II. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to give her a three. I think I'm aware that I've, you know, I've really had to push all of these things. Mm. It's probably, she'd be very upset with me for Mm. the way that I've put a slant (laughs) on her perfectly innocent activities. So, nevertheless, that's a seven for Scandal.
0: Now that's a headline. Subjectivity. So... Mm.
1: This is the biggie This is where there's yeah, an yeah. awful lot to discuss First of all The general thing Being alive at the time The Victorian era Yeah, There's a lot of good stuff here Inventions
0: Shed loads
1: Photography uh, Developed by numerous people Partly in France um, Niepce and uh, Daguerre um, In 1839 Announced to the world that he'd invented photography uh, But also England William Fox Talbot and John Herschel The astronomer and Victoria took a quite a strong interest in photography. Lots of royal portraits of right. her, of Albert, of a whole royal family. But probably she seemed to have thought it inappropriate to smile. And that's where we get this um, misguided... We are not amused. Yeah, that no. whole quote. But there is that picture of her in one of her jubilees where she didn't know that it was being taken and she's yeah. got a big smile. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. The telephone was invented in the mid-1870s by Alexander Graham Bell. Mm-hmm. So in 1878, Victoria noted... After dinner, we went to the council room and saw the telephone. (laughs) A Professor Bell explained the whole process, which is most extraordinary. It had been put in communication with Osborne Cottage, and we talked with Sir Thomas and Mary Biddulph. But it is rather faint, and one must hold the tube rather close to one's ear. Picky. Mm -hmm. But she's obviously, you know, that's obviously one of the first uh, private phone calls.
0: What is it with monarchs getting. First right dibs. The yeah, because <laughs> the Queen sent the first email in 1976 or something yeah, ridiculous. Not Victoria. No, no, no. No, current one.
1: Um, um, she was also the first uh, royal to have her voice recorded. Mm. When the King of Abyssinia was being um, a bit awkward about a border dispute, she had a voice recorded, sent off to him, and apparently he listened to it and then said, All right.
0: <laughs> this will shock him. Yeah. <laughs> Oi!
1: Science and technology. Great advances here at in Britain. Infrastructure, we've got huge uh, networks of canals being built, railways, the London underground. Yeah. Gaslighting and heating. Sanitation improves a lot as well. Public health acts um, in industrial scale production of soap. Yes. And the sewers. The sewers. Um, get Joseph Baselgette builds a London sewage system 82 miles, uh, linking with 1,000 miles of street sewers. Wow. Thames Embankment, where we have sewers, water pipes and the London Underground. With medicine, as we said before, chloroform, thanks to Victoria, yeah. gained uh, widespread popularity. Antiseptics, as well, under uh, Joseph Lister from eighteen sixty-seven. He's British. The first time, he's British. Well, uh, Brunel, one of the oh, great yeah. figures of the age, uh, the Great Western Railway, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, the SS Great Western, which is a steamship first that was built for specifically to cross the Atlantic, mm. and then the SS Great Britain, which was metal rather than wood, had an engine rather than relying on wind and oars and a propeller rather than a paddle wheel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Great should go to that.
1: And also, of course, we have Charles Darwin. Oh, period. hero.
0: 1859
1: publishes on this origin of species and uh, theory of evolution. In culture, uh, arts, we've got the pre raphaelite Brotherhood, Hunt, Millet, Rossetti, Ruskin, Ford Maddox Brown, William Morris. This is the period at which the novel really becomes the staple of uh, literature. So we've got the likes of Charles Dickens, yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Browning and Tennyson, there's poets. And then children's literature as well, like Lewis Carroll, Tom Brown's school days, Rudyard Kipling.
0: Yeah, that's, that is quite a set list.
1: In theatre, there's Gilbert and Sullivan, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although he didn't get a very good run of it,
1: did he? No, not ultimately. Yeah. Um, the Bank Holidays Act in 1871 establishes bank holidays for the first time. So oh, 10 points. People have days off.
0: Yes, that means days off, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bank holidays, quite a strange time.
1: Uh, Thomas Cook starts to uh, get a bit of a holiday business going in this period. Oh, right. right,
0: well.
1: And generally, there's some good stuff for life.
0: Hmm?
1: Population hmm. rises from about 14 million in 1831 to 32 million in
0: 1901, God, that's what what's that's almost that, three times three times
1: we have what's called a demographic transition where we go from high birth and, and high death rates mm. to low birth and low death rates which basically means that people aren't dying young anymore mm. so they're just being born but also they're not being born at such a ridiculous rate because people are better off better educated better yeah. adults, all these sorts of things
0: that must be such a challenge though mm. tripling the population mm.
1: but the they escape the sort of Malthusian trap by which point he said that, you know, you get to a certain point and you can't sustain it. Mm. But the industrialisation means that they're actually able to sustain yeah. this population now.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredible. That speaks volumes um, mm. for <clears throat> subjectivity.
1: Mm. There is, of course, a flip side to the quality of life in the Victorian period. Mm. There's an awful lot of pop- uh, poverty, the huge population increase. And based on mass urbanisation means there's a surfeit of low paid, low skilled jobs. Very menial labour, lots of factory work. Lack of housing means you've got overcrowded slums. Mm. So lots of Dickens novels, particularly Oliver Twist, of course, very much based on that kind of poverty, yeah. which he had first-hand experience. Child labour in this period. Mm. Chimney sweeps. Coal mines. Children would begin work at five. They oh, could go down coal oh mines, Lord. and they generally die before they reach 25. And prostitution. The majority in London are aged between 15 and
0: 22. Wow.
1: And indeed, prostitution is a major social issue of the period. There's a surfeit of women. In 1851 census, there are about 750,000 more women than there are men. <laughs> which in this period, of course, with a gender imbalance, they're not going to be able to support themselves without a yeah. man do the job. So there's a lot of prostitution. And of course, double standards mean that prostitutes get punished, but the men who grant mm. them do not. Josephine Butler in this period fought against the 1864 Contagious Diseases Act, which could force women to submit to inspection if they were suspected of having mm. venereal disease. But of course, the sailors that mm. spread it from port to port don't. Mm. But you've got people like Josephine Butler who are.
0: And you've got the scientists working behind the scenes
1: to eradicate these diseases. Exactly. And you've also got the politicians trying to make things a bit better as well. Yeah. Electoral reforms. The Second Reform Act in 1867 adds about a million people.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant.
1: And then, 1872, the Ballot Act established secret ballots at local and general elections so that people could no longer see who you're voting for. Mm. The Corrupt and Illegal Practices Prevention Act in 1883 criminalised attempting to bribe voters.
0: Yep, jolly good. And
1: limited electoral spending.
0: Not criminalising bribery?
1: No, just... Just just
0: in that instance, right.
1: And the Third Reform Act in 1884 gave counties the same franchise as boroughs, so got a bit more levelling of the rules, depending on... Okay. Where it is added about another six million to the franchise,
0: so that must have
1: two thirds of men in England and Wales three fifths in Scotland and about half in Ireland can now
0: vote compared to the start of her reign yeah, that how many fold increases that that must be it's, it's b- huge huge yeah, huge if you go from one million one time and then seven million mm. wow,
1: and um, social reforms um they do try to tackle all of these appalling conditions that we've. Talked about just now. Factories had to be washed with lime every 14 months. Fe- machinery had to be fenced in. Accidental deaths investigated and reported. Track acts stops employers paying in goods rather than money. Trade unions get legalised and peaceful picketing for the first time, so workers are starting to get yeah, a voice. Power. Um, and it's a period in which the Labour movement really takes off. The formation of the Fabian Society and the formation of the Labour Representation Committee, which ultimately becomes the Labour Party.
0: Oh yes, and
1: in 1900 we have the first election of Labour MPs uh, with Keir Hardie and Richard Bell. Penal Servitude Act ended transportation to Van Diemen's Land. Reformatory Schools Act meant that juveniles could go to reformatory schools rather than prison. Oh, that's nice. Which is nice. Local councils had the power to destroy slums for sanitary reasons and replace with new and better ones. Well,
0: they they were impelled to replace them. They were obliged to replace them. Right, Mm -hmm. okay, to just knock them down.
1: No. And uh, compulsory vaccination of children starts up as well. Oh, wow. The Factory Act in 1853 outlawed uh, child labour between 6pm and 6am. Lazy. So, you know, they get the night off. The 1870 Elementary Education Act provides a national system of elementary schools for the first time their children have to go to school.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, there's just so much stuff here. Mm. This is fantastic.
1: And for women, 1882, the Married Women's Property Act, married women are given the same rights to buy, sell and own property as unmarried women. So legally, they are now recognised as individuals in their own right for mm-hmm. the first time.
0: It's phenomenal, isn't it? So much of what's normal now has mm. just been listed there.
1: We don't, however, have women's suffrage. Women still don't have the vote. Yeah. And this is a, an era, actually, where Victoria doesn't really do much for the sisterhood.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am most anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad, wicked folly of women's rights. With all its attendant horrors on which her poor, feeble sex is bent, forgetting every sense of womanly
0: feeling and propriety. Did she just call it evil? Mad? What was it? Mad? Wicked folly. Wicked folly? What on earth does she think? Well, of course she
1: thinks, you know, if women get the vote and all this... It's not the coming of the sex and how she's going to support herself if she's got a man to look after, all these sorts of things. It's a very different time. Mm. But no plus points.
0: No. But so, just so many to counterbalance this. But there's a lot of other yeah.
1: stuff. Victoria and Albert have a role in governing the country,
0: mm-hmm. obviously. Mm.
1: So, first of all, they're a model family. Yeah. An example to everybody. They're determined to end the scandalous ways of the Hanoverian courts of George IV and William IV, George II. Um, A virtuous couple devoted to their family. They're the middle-class bourgeois domestic ideal.
0: And it's actually really, really clever tactic for then mm. the monarchy surviving the next century, yeah. just being the nation's family. The
1: royal family, the national yeah. family. Um, previously, Victoria had loved Court balls and frivolities but Albert valued the moral peace and quiet of the countryside so that's why they go into more modest establishments like Osborne and Balmoral rather than the rather more lavish palaces like Brighton Pavilion that were built by yeah. George IV mm. so they're no longer showboating wealth other influences the white wedding yeah. entirely through when Victoria made a slightly unusual choice at the time to have a white dress at her wedding the unusual decision. At the time, they had different colours, different designs. Victoria had a white dress, therefore everybody had a white dress, and now it's everyone has a white over, dress, yeah. and it's all from Victoria. Wow. And her daughter, her eldest daughter, Vicky, was um, not the first, but the one that popularised Mendelssohn's wedding march in 1858. <laughs> and they also, after that wedding, went onto to the Buckingham Palace balcony and did a little bit of a Yeah,
0: wave. that's... Uh, me, Bill.
1: Christmas Yes The Victorian Christmas 1843 Dickens publishes A Christmas Carol It's an instant hit Creates pretty much In one go The traditional Christmas Mm. That we still know And love now In the same year Sir Henry Cole Published the first Christmas card
0: Mm.
1: Um, The tree The Christmas tree Wasn't introduced By Albert Oh I thought I
0: had A little Rex fact
1: It was actually Introduced by George III's wife Charlotte Charlotte However it became Widespread in Britain After the marriage Was she German? She was German, yeah. So So it's a German thing. It's a German thing, and it was Albert that probably helped to popularise it Mm. more widely because they're this ideal family, so everybody wants the Victorian Christmas. Yeah. However, things are a little bit dull at court. Yeah. They're all so moral and all this sort of stuff. There's long periods of inactivity. After dinner is really limited to small talk and embroidery. Socks, presumably. Socks. Victoria is not noticed for her taste in fashion, and her shyness means that conversation doesn't really flow very easily yeah um, also the mourning etiquette, even before Albert Victoria is all about mourning, so in eighteen because so a period when somebody of her family dies, there's a period of which quarter's in mourning
0: oh right okay, yep, yeah, yep yeah.
1: and Victoria's fastidious about this, so in eighteen fifty two she realized that she'd been mourning for nine out of twelve months for the last three or four years, with ten of her uncles and aunts having died since eighteen forty one
0: Good grief,
1: to which family <laughs> for...
0: <Pardon, pardon>.
1: one <laughs> <laughs> boom. <laughs> Albert's role specifically. Mm. He's a very able man, conscientious, highly educated and instilled with a powerful sense of public duty. And he really takes on a strong role and he does a lot of good. He sees the monarchy as being in the national interest, above party and to improve the lot of the people.
0: That's going to score big, then.
1: Takes great interest in the work of uh, Lord Ashley and his social reforms. Mm. Invites him to Balmoral and praises him for his work to improve life of children working in mines and all yeah. factories, all these sorts of things. Um, becomes the president for the Society for Improving the Condition of the Labouring cr- uh, Classes. And also, of course, in foreign disputes. Remember in 1861, when he was pretty much on his, literally on his deathbed, but he got out of bed having read this letter which was sent to America.
0: Oh, to edit it.
1: To edit it. And pretty much war was inevitable, but Albert edits it, makes it much more diplomatic. War's avoided. Yeah. So on his deathbed, he stopped yeah, Britain yeah. going to war with America.
0: Yeah, and all the Prime Ministers preferred <coughs> dealing with him. Right? Yeah.
1: yeah. His biggest thing was the Great Exhibition in 1851. Mm. And they sponsored an international exhibition to show off British commerce to the world. So... Big ambitions, we have the building of Crystal Palace. Yeah. Designed by Joseph Paxton, huge glass palace, 1.75 miles of exhibition space, about 300,000 panes of glass.
0: Mm.
1: Birds were a bit of a problem because they enclosed uh, the trees in Hyde Park. It sort of went over bits of park. Oh, wow. So they had lots of birds that couldn't be caught, to which Wellington famously suggested Victoria, dry sparrowhawks, Hawks, Mom. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I suppose a shotgun wouldn't really be appropriate.
1: <laughs> all in all, about 100,000 exhibits, 14,000 exhibitors, mm. um, showed off all the latest technology, industry and design from Britain, attended by about 6 million people.
0: God, that's numbers the Dome could only dream of.
1: It's equivalent to about a third of Britain's population. Yeah. Major boost to British commerce, and Albert ensured that all the money that was raised from it was spent on educational institutions and museums in South Kensington. So the Victorian Albert Museum, the Natural History Museum, the Imperial College of Science and Technology, Royal College of Music, and also huge improvements to the British Museum. That's fantastic. Huge point. Victoria's a good woman as well. Mm. Charity, she donates about £8,000 per year from 1837 to seventy-one, which is about 15% of the privy purse. Uh, About £650,000 in total throughout her reign that she donates uh, to charity. Patronises 150 institutions, uh, donates money to victims of natural disasters, colliery disasters. She disliked evangelicals and high church as sort of Sabbatarianism, i.e. saying that you can't do things on Sunday. Yeah. It's God's day. So she encourages opening art galleries and museums on Sunday.
0: Yeah, quite so.
1: I'm not at all an admirer or approver of our very dull Sundays, for I think the absence of innocent amusements for the poor people a misfortune and an encouragement of vice.
0: Mm. I suppose what you could do is
1: yeah exactly the united kingdom i'm aware of it mixed results scotland big thumbs up really victoria loves scotland oh of
0: course balmoral
1: balmoral scottish royal residence the whole family would decamp there albert loved the hunting they both loved the people the scenery the walks dressed their children in tartan arranged for gaelic lessons for the estate workers she publishes the Highland Journals, of course. So she says, Scotch air, Scotch people, Scotch hills, Scotch rivers, Scotch woods, are all far preferable to those of any nation in or out of this world.
0: Mm.
1: But she never went to India. Ministers not always quite so pleased to go. One commentator bemoaned the tartanitis of Balmoral. moral. Huh. They did everything, yeah. the tartan. Uh, Victoria didn't feel the cold, completely impervious to it. So she preferred to have windows open and the heating off. So the Tsar of Russia, when he visited, uh, noted that Siberia was warmer wow. than Balmoral. <laughs> Disraeli shuddered at the memory of the Castle of the Winds. Mm. And uh, Rosebery, um, who visited later on, thought that Osborne House had the ugliest drawing room in the entire world. <laughs> until he saw Balmoral. <laughs> <laughs> not so good in the UK, Ireland.
0: No, certainly not.
1: Things, yeah. It's not a good period for Ireland disraeli and gladstone both suggest establishing a royal residence in ireland and a greater royal presence and bertie potentially having a role victoria not for that every other part of the queen's dominions might get up pretensions for residence, which are out of the question for health and relaxation no one would go to ireland of course gladstone attempts to introduce home rule which is self-government in ireland victoria implacably opposed to the union being broken up, connives with Salisbury to actually <laughs> ensure that it doesn't succeed. Yeah. Um, there is some good. They visit a few times, encouraged by Albert, um, 1849, 51 and 1861, and then her own idea in 1900 she visits as well.
0: Well, wow, she must have been pretty doddery by then.
1: Uh, which, to be fair to her, is more than her prime ministers, Russell and Gladstone, each only went once. Mm. And, you know, Gladstone disestablishes the Irish Church, so there are no more tithe payments. It uh, tries to introduce the three Fs with Land Act, so Fair Rent, Fixity of tenure, Freedom to Sell Holdings. They're trying to do some good.
0: Yeah, but it's just too little, too late, isn't it?
1: Well, and of course, the biggie which really undermines all of this is the uh, Irish Potato Famine. Yes. 1845-52, also known as the Great Famine, or the Mór, the Great Hunger. About a million people in Ireland died.
0: That's just phenomenal, I can't believe that.
1: And another million emigrated. The population fell by around 20
0: to 25%. It's like a plague, 25%.
1: Potatoes became the staple food for the poor, and because of the British market, the countryside is set up for Britain, so to set up beef exports. So lots and lots of cows all over the place, which means that there isn't a lot of room for people to grow food to feed themselves. Mm. There's not a lot of food for Ireland. Um... And there's a potato blight come from Mexico, spreads rapidly across Europe. The reaction to the famine, in October, when it was confirmed that it was there, Peel, the Prime Minister at the time, summoned an emergency cabinet meeting and a scientific commission to investigate and to tell Mm. them what to do. He proposed a relief commission, provision of aid, and repealing the Corn Laws, which was keeping bread and grain at artificially high price. Um, But a lot of his cabinet saw this as essential to the maintenance of English landed interests. The majority voted against him. Mm. He had to fight hard and hard to get stuff done, secretly ordered the purchase of £100,000 worth of Indian corn and also maize from America. And so he did actually give them food. Right. But he kind of had to do it secretly yeah. to other people. Like
0: a giant aid package, or was that put sold? Like a,
1: a Well, yeah, it was sent over there. Unfortunately, yeah. a lot of it was inedible when it was arrived. But the logistics of dealing with this sort of thing is way beyond
0: yeah, the state of his time. But, you yeah, know, right.
1: he does try. Repealed the Corn Laws, set up public works. But he's defeated when Russell's... Government comes in. Their laissez-faire ideology means that they think the market will ultimately sort everything out, so they don't need to directly intervene too much. Cancelled food and relief works turn to workhouses, so that people go to workhouses. If they're poor, but of course you have to be so poor to be allowed in that it means that people actually can't afford to work the land and receive relief. Mm. Yeah, so yes. you're yeah trapping them. And the worst thing is that exports of food continue to England throughout the famine.
0: No.
1: So beef and vegetables and all these sorts of things, they're still exporting food to England. So as the Irishman John Mitchell said, the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. As the Irish Daily Independent noted, no rain was more destructive for our people or more ruinous since the time of the Tudor Queen. In defence (laughs)
0: slightly of
1: Victoria herself, there were some horrible, nasty myths about her that weren't true. There was a myth that she only uh, gave five pounds. Of relief money herself, um, she actually sent two thousand pounds, which should be about sixty-one thousand today. So you know, she does give some money. She patronises the British Relief Association, and a, a letter written by her appealing for money um, helped raise one hundred seventy thousand pounds in one go, and then over, overall, that association raised two hundred thousand pounds. But it's not great. And 1849, when she did visit, heavy security and festivities meant that it cost more than the amount that she'd actually donated anyway.
0: Let
1: me move a bit broader. Mm -hmm. The British Empire.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, on one level, there's an extent to which you might argue that it's slightly morally dubious to annex other people's countries to be run for your own country's economic benefit.
0: I think that's pretty black and white.
1: Fairly black and white. There's a terrible legacy of poverty for the Aborigines in Australia, for the Maori... In New Zealand, there are some atrocities in India, and there's this racist mindset mm. across the empire, which is really quite poisonous. Mm. Um, as Vanity Fair in 1897 noted, although in these 50 years we have waged only one European war, we have waged a great number of wars in Africa and Asia. Wars, for the most part, unjust, waged without due cause, and without declaration of war.
0: Yeah, just they didn't deserve to be, <laughs> have the same uh, conditions of war, which, you know, hmm. against European nations, Terrible.
1: In Victoria's defence, she's got a rather more benevolent attitude than some of her countrymen. She has a very strong feeling, and she has few stronger, that the natives and coloured races should be treated with every kindness and affection as brothers, not, as a lash Englishmen too often do, as totally different beings to ourselves, fit only to be crushed and shot down. It's very, very ahead of her time that she is not racist. Uh, she was saddened when Britain had to fight with such brave black-skinned warriors as Zulu King Ketawayo, who should be treated well when the war is over
0: mm, that's that is surprising, which she was
1: angered many of course when she employed Indian servants, yeah, but for her it wasn't
0: it wasn't a problem it wasn't
1: a problem yeah. after the eighteen fifty seven mutiny, she was one of the few that was speaking against the calls for revenge slaughter. In India. As she said, they should know that there is no hatred to a brown skin, none, but the greatest wish on the Queen's part to see them happy, contented and flourishing.
0: This is surprising. So
1: 1858, uh, there's a proclamation when they're going to have India coming under British rule directly Mm -hmm. rather than through the East India Company. A proclamation which she and Albert are very involved in writing, which urged religious toleration, respect of ancient customs and forgiveness for those that didn't kill Westerners. Yeah. And the other important thing, and it's not, obviously, to say to justify empire, but comparing her to her contemporaries, she comes off rather better. Leopold II in Belgium... He's the fella. He's the fella. Brutally exploits the Congo, especially the rubber industry. Killings and mutina- uh, mutilations are common when uh, quotas weren't met. It's thought that the population pretty much halved in 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's this
1: brutal suppression.
0: Unreal,
1: that's great. Comes a bit later, 1904 to 1907. But the Kaiser, so mm. sort of contemporary, Herrero and Namakwa genocide—the first 20th-century genocide, modern-day Namibia—over 100,000 killed. Very high mortality in concentration camps.
0: The, the British invented.
1: Britain invented them, but in Germany here, there's much more of a mindset of military at the time of actually getting rid of the population. Wow. So while it's a bad thing generally. It's not as bad as it might have been. And Victoria herself has very forward-thinking attitudes. Yeah. The monarchy itself, her job, was she what she should be? A constitutional monarch.
0: Mm -hmm. Not well. We have this... um... Lots of things.
1: Mm. The Melbourne years. Very naive, comes to the throne at 18. Isolated, lacking in knowledge and education. A lazy mentor, Melbourne. So we have things like the Flora Hastings and the bedchamber crises. That Hanoverian stubbornness to sort of get her own way and the partisanship that she showed for the Whigs over the Conservatives really is pushing the prerogative to the absolute limit.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We then could argue that, in effect, we have King Albert. She almost cedes control so completely that she becomes a subservient wife. So he wears down her stubbornness so that she comes to rely on him totally. She accepts him as intellectually superior.
0: As do the MPs, yeah. As do the MPs, it's so she kind of whined it
1: down. Well, just a figurehead now, but it's doing a lot mm. of the work in that period. Then when he dies, she becomes the weeping widow, insists on carrying out her duties just in private, so she won't appear in public, rarely stays in London, very rarely agrees to open Parliament. Mm. In defence, she was always very shy mm. and nervous in these situations, and we've got to remember that there were seven attempts that people made to murder her. Yes,
0: that's true. Completely so it's
1: understandable that yeah. she doesn't feel safe in public. Yeah as she does reemerge. After Palmerston dies in 1865, she's forced to get back into politics. Russell and Derby struggled for reform, but then we had Disraeli with his Melbourne-esque flattery, with his poetical floral language, getting her back, enjoying things again. A bit of a bad influence again, of course. Like Melbourne, he encourages the view that she's all-powerful, she's at the centre of everything, she can do everything. Mm. And sure enough, she does really push it, again, with Gladstone. She doesn't like him, thinks his policies and radicals and cabinet are dangerous. And... She meddles a lot this yeah. period. 1880, she tries to point somebody else as prime minister until they told her there really wasn't anyone else who could do the job. Home rule, she corresponds with Salisbury, the opposition leader, to try and help ensure that Gladstone is defeated, um, even showing him some of his private papers. Fortunate that Gladstone never made a fuss about it and that he didn't support republicanism because if Gladstone yeah. had been anti, it could have been very, very difficult for her to have had such an attitude. And
0: she treated him badly enough. hmm even It's just saved by the fact that he loved her. Yes. poor blown.
1: <laughs> However, she is aware of her uh, limitations. She noted when um, she was trying to get Gladstone to act to relieve Gordon in cartoon. Mm. And she lamented how um, she was so powerless to be a sovereign and to be unable to prevent grievous mistakes is a very hard and ungrateful
0: task. So she recognises her position then. Mm.
1: And we have a new old young Victoria after all of this.
0: Yeah, she's getting all involved, and she involved. the wars. But
1: this time she does have um, the benefit of experience and actual knowledge. As we've said before, she's that figure with diplomatic clout, this huge worldwide figure, the grandmother of Europe. Mm. And she works hard, received huge amounts of official papers from her ministers, large amount of correspondence from all the European world families, and after Albert dies, she loses that hugely important filter, because he used to summarise things for her, so she's just getting it. Yeah as it was she read all her papers quickly spotted mistakes or when things that should have come to her hadn't come to her lifelong tenacity in the appointments of officials particularly in the church encyclopedic knowledge of the European dynasties yeah, so she's family. well exactly so he's really the most foremost expert in
0: yeah. foreign
1: affairs And uh, Arthur Balfour, uh, the leader of the Commons, when she died, noted, I remember when I saw a vast mass of untouched documents which awaited the hand of the sovereign. It was brought vividly before my mind. How admirable was the unostentatious patience with which she carried out her share in the government of this great empire. For her there was no holiday, no intermission of toil. So basically when she dies, within a couple of days, suddenly piles and piles of papers stacking up up because that's how much she was getting through every day. And she's popular. Yeah. Which is pretty important. For the thing. last bit. Well, for a pretty long bit of the last mm. bit. 1887-97. Huge public celebrations of her jubilees. Over a million people turn out to cheer her. She's more widely and more deeply revered than any of her predecessors. Mm. Which is pretty good going.
0: Yeah. Jolly good going. She has some characters.
1: She, she becomes the figurehead of this glorious imperial age. She's the symbol of virtue, stability, national identity. Yeah, she, her face
0: appears everywhere. She's...
1: Mm. And when she dies, it's genuinely seen as this cataclysmic event. People recognise that an era has finished. The Telegraph noted, Who can think of the nation and race without her? The golden reign is closed. And the Spectator said, We have come to the end of a great and glorious epoch. We have reached our zenith, and the nation must now begin to decline.
0: Which is true.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is good. Because it's such a long reign, there is so much that's amazing, and there's so much that's awful. So it's quite hard to balance them out.
0: I think it's very, very good. Mm. Um, there's so much good. And if you looked at, when did, when did she start? 1837. 37, and you compare that to 1901. Mm. I'd rather live in London in 1901. Yeah. Um, it's too big to go back through. Yes. <laughs> it's just all the inventions, technology, science,
1: culture. But we've seen so many things that yeah. Victoria and Albert do, therefore, we do it now. Yeah, it's Excellent. still that legacy. She still kind of is a shadow that... Is yeah, I hadn't
0: appreciated and, sure. and all of those things—the mm. sewers, the telephone, the—oh, getting rid of the slums, <laughs> just everything that you'd recognise of mm. in the city today.
1: It's still bad for a lot of people. There's still terrible poverty very for lot of people. Poverty, and it's appalling for
0: Ireland. I think if it weren't for Ireland, mm. I'd have given it ten. Mm. I'm going to take two off. Mm. Because there was effectively a genocide. <laughs> <The quarter laughs> Very controversial population. what word we use. Yeah, that's the true. Word. There's um, there's a, a quarter of the population is lost. Mm. So that's got to be at least two points. <laughs> yes. I'm going for eight. Mm. Begin.
1: I think I've got to go for eight too. I mean, it's, it's such a leap forward and there's so much that's done. And for all the bad stuff, which we focused probably too much on in the last four episodes, the weeping widow and mm. the stubbornness, there's a lot of good stuff mm. in there as well. It's, it's a biggie. It's a big step forward So that's 16. Subjectivity.
0: Longevity.
1: She rules from Ooh. 20th of June, 1837, to the 22nd of January, 1901. Longest ever reign by a British monarch for now. Yeah, Queen's getting close, but she's not there yet. Sixty-three point five eight years. Yeah, so Queen's couple of our Queen's a couple of years off. Kaiser Wilhelm remarked, "Just think of it. She remembers George the Third, and now we are in the twentieth century."
0: Took the right out of my mouth. Mm. That's uh, yeah, it is amazing. It's phenomenal. Is it the Where does it rank on the world standings? I think there was it was it the monarch, the Thai Monarch, or someone like that? There's someone that.
1: Oh, he's was, maybe the one that's gone on longer than Elizabeth II Now there is someone that's gone on. Yeah.
0: Because there it's was, long there long was long. all the chat around the Golden Jubilee that mm. was talking about at the time. Um, but it's pretty impressive. I mean, yeah, that's going <laughs> to smash our score right 63.
1: up. 63.58 into the PASHI calculator. It is, of course, 20 out of 20 yeah. because it's the top score. It's the
0: top score. Dynasty, not the programme.
1: Six surviving children. Mm. Um, they actually had nine children in total, all of whom survived into adulthood, but sadly, three of them did die before Victoria. Yeah. But in dynastic terms, I mean, it's obviously we just score on children, but it's pretty epic. Yeah. Nine children, 36 grandchildren, 37 great-grandchildren. Uh, grandmother of Europe, who said descendants of the kings and queens of Britain, Russia, Germany, Spain, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Greece, Romania, and Yugoslavia. That's
0: <laughs> phenomenal.
1: It got so much that she even, even got bored of it. Really? She said one time, I fear the seventh granddaughter and fourteenth grandchild becomes a very uninteresting thing. For me, it seems like we go on like rabbits in Windsor Park.
0: Well, you've got yourself to blame there, madam.
1: And uh, babies. Yeah. yeah? I don't dislike babies, though I think very young ones rather disgusting. I have no tender for them till they become a little human. An ugly baby is a very nasty object, and the prettiest is frightful, till about in four months. In short, as long as they have their big body and little limbs and a terrible frog-like action.
0: (laughs) That's more like it, Victoria. Back to Victorian values. Even children are a bit distasteful. Yes. So they can wear proper clothes.
1: (laughs) Ugly froggy things. Anyway, for Dynasty, she's got six surviving children, which gives her a 10.02 for Dynasty.
0: Is that the highest?
1: Not for Dynasty, but if we look at her total score, she has scored a whopping 68.52. Not quite the top. She's below Henry II, who scored 69.11, but she is the second highest score. She has overtaken Edward I. I'm speechless. <laughs>
0: That's the second highest score? Second That's all because score. she just sat there.
1: Well, 20 for longevity, but she got 15.5 for battliness, 16 for subjectivity.
0: It's a good mm-hmm. score. Yeah, it is a good score. I mean, yeah, is it actually surprising, really? It's the height of British power.
1: Exactly, and we think, if we go down, Charles II, 37.79. William IV, 36.2. So he doubles almost. That's huge. scores. That's a big score. Will it be enough? Does she have that certain something, the star quality, the mark of greatness, the lasting legacy, which we call... Rex Factor!
0: You know... For four of these episodes, <laughs> I was—I I couldn't believe that she would. Mm. I really couldn't. I mean, I, she was just dull. She was, but really, even if I think—I think the problem is that she has that certain something to. The entire population, probably to all of her subjects, mm. she's this... And
1: you think that's a lot of the world yeah,
0: subjects <laughs> She has direct factors, certainly, that for, mm. for them. Even if it might be an artificial... It's an artifice that's yeah. projected onto her because of all these other achievements. Mm. You can't avoid it.
1: And the leg- you can't deny the legacy as well. Yeah. Which is partly the legacy on the royal family, partly cultural and so many of these things, which we think we still are traditions now, so many of them come, like the White Wedding, it's just because Victoria did it. Yeah. And you can say that's quite a minor thing, but it's just a sign of
0: it is the impact she has on society. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it, you, you'll see that now in everything from Shrek, which is set in the <laughs> Middle Ages, and an American film company, mm. all because of this one wedding. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of that. I feel a
1: bit bad because I realised from from your reactions and from a lot of the comments we're getting from people, that she probably wasn't coming across very well. Mm. And I think because she wrote such a huge amount of their journals yeah. and letters, we know so much more about her that we get a lot of the petty, trivial things. Mm. And there have got to be other things. You know, Henry V might have hated the colour blue, for example, <laughs> and he might have refused to go out to battle unless yeah. everybody took off their blue shirts. Yeah. We yeah. don't know, yeah. because yeah. he didn't write yeah, exactly. it down. Yeah. I'm sure they all had all these really petty mm-hmm. things. There is that period where she pretty much just doesn't do anything, and she's weeping. She is petulant at times. There is lots of these extended bad periods, but we probably did less on sort of the eighteen eighties to modern day, which mm. to nineteen hundred when she's so popular and she's such an important focal point in the empire. It's always all just going so well. It's huge. So yeah, so you just kind of quickly finish mm. to the end once you get past the entertaining stuff about how rubbish she was about grieving for Albert.
0: Yeah. And, the, the, and although we've drifted away from the sword waving, yes, she's bringing it back. Loving it. Absolutely loving it, which was unexpected. Mm. Really was.
1: Um, and it's what you want, really. That's what the monarchs should be doing. If they can't be out there fighting. You, it's, gotta...
0: it's certainly what you want from an empress. Yes, <laughs> I mean, mm. that's, this is, or an emperor. The Empress um, of India. The popular, is,
1: ima- her status still in the popular imagination.
0: That's what I think. It, she it, it, is one it, the of pop- the names. Exactly. And I was really, th- I wasn't hoping, I was <laughs> thinking we'd have a Rex Factor surprise where mm. I wouldn't give it to her. And Queen Victoria wouldn't get the Rex Factor. But it is just in the popular imagination. And when you look at it deeper, I don't think it, mm. it's not all, it's all smoke and mirrors, mm. but... But regardless, mm. it, she, she is. She's just. She's Queen Victoria. She's she's Britannia. Yes. She's, it's a yes. And I can't believe after those four <laughs> episodes, five episodes, it's a yes, but it's a yes.
1: It's a yes from me as well. Yeah. Well done to Victoria. Despite my uh, probably rather poor episode planning, <laughs> you have joined the greats on the Rex Factor Mountain.
0: And you can't expect her at the second highest score, really. No. not to get
1: it. Yeah. And if she's good enough to get a high school than over at the first, that's
0: <sighs> well you actually take it back. <laughs> so finally the heavy iron door of Victoria's creaking shut. It is shut. It's over, but she did it. Impressively. It's a long time ago now, but
1: William IV got the Rex factor as well, which means that we are actually on a a two streak Rex factor. Oh, yeah,
0: we so
1: next time we will be doing Edward the Seventh. I think it's fair to say a rather different character to Queen Victoria and I think it's also fair to say you're going to like him
0: yes another one good
1: so until next time cheerio bye bye